Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and I'm so glad you've been with me, whether it's been the six plus years that I've been doing this, or if you've just found me recently. I know some of you are aware and others are not that I'm starting to release a Lexio Divina practice each Wednesday um, on the Faith Conversations channel here, and also releasing an audio version of Mike Murphy's Friday Rumblings on Fridays. So maybe you've not caught that. And as always, releasing a longer conversation on Mondays. And today, I'm so glad that the conversation is with KJ Ramsey. She's a trauma-informed licensed professional counselor, and she's a writer. And you maybe have read her in Christianity Today, Relevant, Huffington Post, um, Catalyst, all kinds of places. But we are grateful that she has written, The Lord is My Courage. Stepping Through the Shadows of Fear Toward the Voice of Love, and uh, I'm excited to have her as my guest on the podcast um, this week. So KJ, welcome to Faith Conversations. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I want to start out actually by talking for a moment about a couple of words in your bio. I, I, I yeah. hear this phrase all the time, and I'm thinking that there might be people listening that go, yeah, you know, I've heard this phrase, um, so-and-so is a trauma-informed therapist, or what does that mean? Because we talk a lot about trauma today mm -hmm. in our world for good reason, but what does that mean? Well, I'm glad that you asked, because I think it's an incredibly important term. Um, so trauma-informed means that I take the body and her way of surviving very seriously. So to be a trauma-informed therapist or trauma-informed anything um, means that we pay attention to the body's innate ways of surviving very hard things. And we offer deep respect for those survival strategies and work with rather than against the body's need for safety in the process of becoming whole and well. So I, so much of my practice as a, as a licensed professional counselor, so much of my practice begins with and integrates the body. Um, and so, so much of our story and our, our sensations, our hardest, um, our hardest things are held in our bodies mm. and carried in our bodies. And so the way that trauma-informed plays out is that I'm always attuned to my client's physicality, even in session of how are they responding to this conversation or this, um, this meditation, this, you know, breathing practice, this tapping, um, I'm, I'm paying attention to how 
dysregulated they might feel so that they can in the moment experience the way that attunement and safety physically with me brings them back to a state of connection. So trauma-informed simply means that I deeply respect the ways that our bodies survive hard things and can grow through hard things. So um, I just think about what's going on, not just in our world. Uh, I feel like uh, hard things are coming at us all the time um, from the broader culture, you know, uh, at the recording of this podcast, there's a war happening in Ukraine and we listen and take this in. Uh, in the context of the church culture, there uh, are all kinds of things happening that are um, uh, right now in, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention talking about the, the abuse, um, power abuse, sexual abuse, all kinds of abuses happening. You know, we're taking that in, um, whether we were directly uh, a victim or whether we are a, a, a victim of the system or, you know, it's just, it's really interesting that in, in many ways we are all um, recipients of some kind of trauma, but at different levels. Am I, is that right? Yeah. Um, it, it is true that, you know, like Francine Shapiro, some, the founder of EMDR therapy, says that trauma is any event that has had a, ne a lasting negative effect. Mm. Um, Gabor Mate says trauma is what happens in the absence of an empathetic witness. Like, there's, there's lots of definitions of what yes. trauma is. And there's, you know, trauma is the whole continuum from yeah. the very large, like we call them big T traumas to the small T traumas of everyday life. But Yes, I think that we live in a traumatizing, traumatic world, mm -hmm. and especially with the, the exposure that we have to so much wrong on a large level, I don't, I don't think that our bodies were made to take in this much wrong um, all the time. Mm. And there's like a, there's definitely a tension between our need to be good global citizens and have empathy for one another. And then the way that the human body actually works. Um, and it's, it's a difficult thing to be alive today, Absolutely. especially for people who are, are very empathetic. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Especially for those who are very empathetic. And I think the, the other difficulty is we want to be informed about what's going on in our world and yet how much is too much, you know, that's, that's yeah. the other tricky piece as well. And that also depends on how, who we are, like, like you just said, you know, very empathetically wired people or who we are mm -hmm. as individuals. Some of us can handle more than others. It's just interesting. And I was yeah. thinking too, of the differences in physical, emotional, spiritual trauma, um, I, I had a traumatic brain injury a year, like almost exactly a year ago, but it didn't, you know, I have recovered well. Um, and it, it, so I had all this, this conversation, you know, earlier in the year about how I was affected and largely almost solely it was physical. You know, I wondered if it's, 
stepped over into other areas. It was, it was all a very interesting conversation. And so I think um, that definition is really helpful for us as we look at our world. Now, I have to go to another question, follow this with another question. Why did you move toward um, becoming a therapist? That's always an interesting question as well. Usually <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a good story behind that, I'm guessing, or a big yeah. story. I was working for a nonprofit that was not healthy relationally. And I have an autoimmune disease. Well, now I have several, but I, my disease got very, very bad while in this relationally gross environment. And so I got too sick to do a normal full-time job. And while it was the place where I began my writing career and there was so much about it that I loved, my body could not take being in that kind of system. And so in the process of getting my own therapy from, I ended up finding a therapist that has a chronic illness as well and found like there was so much I didn't have to explain to her about yes. what my daily life looks like. Yep. Um, what it is like to be in this body and to go to so many doctor's appointments and like be well-ish one day and not the next hour. Or, um, I, I realized at that point that there's a need for people to understand chronic physical difficulties and that I also could find, I could have a little bit more, accessibility over being able to work by being a therapist. Um, I, I work right here since the beginning of the pandemic. I've been all online because I am immunosuppressed and have an immunodeficiency. So I'm a little bit, I'm a lot more careful than probably most people. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to offer presence to people in a way that does not most of the time, um, overwhelm my physical body and her yes. needs. So I, I became a therapist out of my own need for, for help and, and my finding of the gift of what presence can offer somebody mm. in a very lonely, hard place. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. and I love, I love what I get to do. Nice. Oh, I, I love hearing that story. I mean, not what's happened to you and the issues that you have to deal with day to day. Um, but thank you for that, for sharing that. Um, let's get into your book, uh, which I think is really interesting on a lot of levels. But, uh, you know, as you start reading the title, as I looked at the cover and I go, the Lord is my, oh, of course, I wanted to say shepherd, but the Lord is mm -hmm. my courage. But you have formatted this book or based this book on the 23rd Psalm. Um, I love that you've broken it down into several sections, uh, three to be specific, three parts, um, blessed, broken, and given, and that you begin with an invitation. Um, the first line, I thought, oh, I'll keep reading. This is a book for the broken, because isn't that all of us? today in one mm -hmm. way, shape or form. Uh, why, why the 23rd Psalm? What, um, talk about what it is about that 
beautiful passage of scripture that so many of us know well, whether we grew up mm-hmm. in the church or not, we've heard it at funerals at, uh, you know, all kinds of places. My grandmother had me memorize it as a child. And mm-hmm. so why, why that passage? So it, it wasn't my initial plan, uh, but I became totally captivated by the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Mm-hmm. And that's where blessed, broken, given comes from the, okay. the three parts in the Mark, the Mark and telling of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It says that Jesus saw the crowd and he had compassion on them for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And that's where the miracle begins. Jesus looks at this crowd who's all heading the opposite way of the place of power in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And he sees them, sees their hunger, and he has compassion on them. Um, I saw the phrase sheep without a shepherd. And I thought to myself, that's, those are my people. So many of the people that I write for have experienced harm in the church no longer fit in the church, have not been adequately known, sought after, have been shamed, forgotten about, devoured. And whether that's by a shepherd, a pastor, a priest, or by somebody in a shepherding role of parent or teacher, coach, even a friend who has a lot of power Um, so many of us are like sheep without a shepherd. We feel alone and not sought and seen. And so that phrase and that miracle Mm -hmm. of the way that Jesus took this little boy's offering and he blessed it, broke it and gave it and became more than enough for more than just the people right in front of him. That is what took me on a bit of a journey to think about like, who is this good shepherd? And one day on the phone with the fellow author friend, we were talking about our book structures and like how I'm bad at structure and I wish I had this innate one. And she started to recite Psalm 23 to me. Huh. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And I thought this Psalm has everything that I have been trying to articulate in this book. Hmm. And the, And the beautiful thing that I did not know at the time is that Jesus feeding the crowds was a deliberate reenactment of Psalm 23 and even told in the same literary style as the Psalm, just stuff that I talk about in here. But I, I believe (laughs) deeply in my soul, God knew I was going to write about this and took me on a bit of a, a bit of a journey to see like, this is the promised shepherd and my own. and, And so much of my own story is in this of experiencing harm but coming to see that there has always been a good shepherd who is seeking me and that that is true for all of us. Um, so that's a bit of a circuitous telling, but it, it was an amazing process and yeah. not one that I could have even planned for myself. Do you think that every book, every author is writing to themselves for themselves uh, it, it, you know, somewhat even maybe some healing for themselves as they write a book. Well, what are your thoughts on that? And, and is that the case for you? I, I do think to an extent, so there's, 
there are about 40,000 words, which is a full book length that did not make it into this book that were ah, for me. Okay. Oh, um, yes. I get that. You I know, totally get I, that. I, I think a first draft is usually for the author and this, what you have in your hands is probably about draft number eight. Um, <laughs> I take, I take my crap seriously, but, um, I think, I think, yes, I, I wrote the book that I wished that I had when my husband and I were realizing we were in a toxic soul crushing faith system and we didn't know we were so confused and we felt like it would be wrong to speak up about our pastor hurting Mm -hmm. people. And you, you're like, what do you do about the unity of the church? And I, I didn't have a story to guide me through and we found our way and there were people who spoke into the darkness, which those stories are in the book, but I wanted to give people something of the solace that I found along the way so that their dark valley doesn't have to be nearly as dark as mine was. Mm. And I think that is partly how books work. I know that's how my first book worked. Like you you offer people what you wish you had. Is that what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You offer people what you have. Isn't that, in, yeah. yeah. And, and what you wish that you could have had what you wish when you, you felt had. so, yeah. what you felt when you felt so alone and mm-hmm. confused in the middle of your own story. Um, mm-hmm. But you do it with a lot of intention so that it's not just about bandaging your own wounds, but right. um, giving people something that they, they really need. Well, and do you think that's where, I mean, I'm certainly guessing that, and I feel that in um, the parts of the book that I've read, I feel your, your therapist background coming in. I feel like I'm being guided by a loving and knowledgeable presence that has empathy for wherever I am, you know, in the journey. I mean, that to me, that, you know, you're bringing all of who you are to the writing of this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, that's one of my favorite things about getting to write books and particularly the kind of books I get to write. Um, I just, I feel very thankful that I get to bring my whole self to the page, Mm -hmm. including the, the nerd who has, I don't know, probably over 300 footnotes and the, like (laughs) the, the therapist who I can't help, but feel empathy for where people are at. And the, the person who cusses a little and like the, the theologian in me, I mean, I'm just so grateful because there are so few parts of our lives where we are invited to show up as our full selves. Mm. And I, I think it's important to have ways where we get to model that as much as possible and say like, it's, you're welcome here. Like all of you is welcome here. Yeah. You know, I love that. Uh, And I want to get into the content of the book and we will in a second, but what, one of my other questions I wanted to ask, um, do you see a difference uh, in, in your therapy setting, you know, in the therapist setting, um, between generations do you, or do you largely see a younger generation of clients? I'm, I'm wondering, um, I, I was, so I'm a, a boomer. And so I was thinking about how I hold things in my body versus my millennial son and his mm-hmm. wife, you know, how, um, do you, 
do you see a difference in, um, I don't know if I'm asking the, the trauma informed approach. Yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, for, Oh, I love this question. Generations. Yeah. I'm curious. Okay. Well, first I, first I want to hear if it's not too personal for you, what do you notice of the difference between how you hold things and how your son or family do? Sure. So my part. Yeah. Okay. So I notice, um, for me and I I'm an Enneagram, um, trainer. So that's yeah. some of my love and I'm an Enneagram. Yeah. That's some of my background too. Okay. <laughs> so I'm an Enneagram three who I would like to believe is on the healthier side. I definitely have learned how to f- slow down and be as opposed to do, you know, but, but I still have my predispositions, et cetera. Right. Um, mm-hmm. that, that I'm aware of. Uh, so, uh, it took me a long time to, to start feeling the things that were really presenting in me, I could feel other people's feelings and, but wait, mm-hmm. what am I feeling? And where, and where am I carrying that? And for the longest time I would have said, Oh no, I'm not, <laughs> I don't carry this stuff, but I carry that. I feel things now, um, in my gut, a tightening of my gut or a tension in my shoulders. So mm-hmm. I know exactly where I feel certain things and it depends on what it is as to where I feel it as well. Yep. Yeah. Um, and my son, now that's interesting. He'll listen to this podcast and he'll tell me I, that I maybe was wrong with this. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, he's an Enneagram nine. Oh, and okay. Yeah. So I think that um, I don't think he thinks that he holds on to it. I don't think he holds on to it in the same way, but I do see it in not wanting to have confrontation though. He, he will, cause he's, yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and a lot younger. So he's 29. Okay. So that's that. So I'll let you respond. Yeah. That. That's, that's, thank you for sharing those parts. Um, I'm a four with a five wing and my husband's okay. a nine with the one wing, um, to give you a little background. I'm 33 and I see both, I, I, I would say I see a majority of people who are millennials. And then I do have a handful of folks who are probably boomer, very edge of Gen X and boomer. Um, and you know what? I think that the, the difference between how people carry things is probably a bit more with regard to their triad with the ideogram than it is their, um, their generation. I think that there's a, a very similar mistrust of feeling across the board, <laughs> whether somebody has like begun a process of deconstruction or not, whether they're a millennial or a boomer, like there's, I think we've all ingested a cultural toxicity there. That makes Um, sense too. Yeah. Yeah. And, but yeah, I think I see the difference more in my clients types and their triad than, than I do, um, in their generation and some, I think with the generation fit, like there can be just a little bit, maybe a little bit of time needed to like offer people more welcome of like you do have feelings and that you are, you need to feel them. And like, 
care about you, not just your children. And um, there's a little bit of a little bit more time, I think, there spent. But sure. Yeah. yeah that Sorry. That's just so such a sense. that's such a fascinating question. I, I just love I, you know, I don't um, early on in my career, I would kind of go through a typing process with everybody that I worked with. Um, so like I said, our, my husband and I's background was, is in the Enneagram too, but now I just kind of like intuitively watch and, and I just, there's such, there is a difference in between how every type carries their body and, and where they carry that stress. I do find my son saying, it'll be okay, mom. It'll be okay. And I will often think it's because you need it to be okay. Don't you, John? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which may or may not be true, but that's what I think in my head. So that's just so interesting. Well, I thank you. I have, I love, um, the Enneagram and I so appreciate it in the spiritual direction, um, area in which I live a lot of my life. So I could see how you would really like it in the therapy yeah. area. There's just, there's a lot of room. I think, um, the Enneagram can give us a, a lot of guidance into like where we need to go to be more whole. And I like to kind of mentally overlay it with how our nervous systems work. And I think mm. that different types have different predispositions of what I would call their home away from home in their nervous system of whether that's fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Um, <laughs> like a nine, so, yeah. their home away from home is fawn and freezing a bit. Um, like what's the home away helpful. from home for the three? Uh, that is def well, I would say sometimes fawning, but, um, there's a lot of fight in a three. And so staying in a state, a sympathetic nervous system state is it's very hard for a three to pop out of that, uh, state. So there's like different things that I think with each type, as I pay attention to where this person is, that they need to help them get back home mm. to that state, nervous system state of connection yeah. and calm. Um, yes. And it gives me some good indicators of kind of what's your like really well-tread path of um, how you wander away from your the home that you're most met for. Mm -hmm. um, there's some really interesting cues there, but I just, wow. That's I find all this great. so fascinating. <laughs> well, sorry folks that we went down this little, no, I'm sure you're like a, a little rabbit trail <laughs> enjoying it as well. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things I love about the Lord is my courage that you do with the 23rd Psalm is you take it phrase by phrase. And sometimes that's even a word, you know, at a time. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. what, what, what led you to do that? Because I really love that. Now, let me just give a quick example. Like, you know, the first chapter, the Lord, then the second is my shepherd. Third, I lack fourth, nothing. So phrase or literally word, what yeah. sent you that direction and breaking it down like that? So, uh, I would say two things. One was when I wrote my first book, um, turns out when you do something for the first time, you don't know what you're doing <laughs> and you have to, you have to be a beginner and like figure out how to do something and how to finish something. And then as you gain competence in that, you have more room to play. And so something I real, I realized after writing my first book was like, 
I am a very, I'm a pretty dense writer and I, and I'm a little ambitious in how I, how much I weave in. And I found that it took people a long time to get through my very long chapters. And so I wanted to, I wanted to give readers like a gentle, more um, a sense of agency in how you make it through a book that traverses some really hard territory. So each chapter short. Can I say, I love that. I love that. And I think that's how people read today. Our attention spans are shorter, right? We're so used to the digital age, whatever you want, the sound bite. I like it. It's part of that. Part of that is me. That's a manifestation of me being trauma informed is that I, I really want to honor the way that our brains and bodies work, even while reading a book that we get overwhelmed easily and we can only take in so much at a time Yes, and we need story to pull us through. Um, so I tried to do that in the form of the book and the structure of the book. And then I also think that there is just so much more to this psalm than I growing I you know as I talk about in the book I was almost born in a church parking lot like I've been in church my whole entire life but so I've known the 23rd psalm my whole life and there's so much more in here than I could have ever anticipated and so by breaking it down I think it's almost like we have this gem and we can like turn it in the light and see the facets yes. and see the, yes. see where the light falls um, yes. in a way that we couldn't when we look totally. at it with larger chunks. Um, well, so, and let me yeah. just interject this. I think that many of us who grew up in the church, we were taught to read large swaths, you know, we're reading for yep. knowledge. We're, and yes. I am a huge lover of spiritual practices and I probably Lexio Divina is probably my favorite, but you know, this smaller chunk in which you read it and listen to it in a different way. And I feel like you've done a whole book, if you will, in a Lexio Divina kind of way. Yeah. Um, that was on purpose. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Those are, well, I mean, my, some of my core spiritual practices too. And a lot of the, the practices, um, spiritual disciplines kind of thing get start to get woven in as you get a little further into the book of things like centering prayer and right. mentioned the examine nice. at one point nice. or yeah. um, emotional freedom technique is a thing that I integrate into prayer, walking, nice. um, things you might not think about as spiritual disciplines, but that are. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, I, I think I, so many people, so if we go back to like people that I write for feel like sheep without a shepherd, whether they want to take that mantle on or not. And I, so many of us feel that way because the word has been weaponized against us and, Mm -hmm. and weaponized against parts of ourselves that God has called good, our emotions, our physicality, even our trauma responses, um, the parts that God seeks and even embodied in Jesus Christ, who, like I talk about in the book, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane experienced such intense anxiety that his sweat was like drops of blood of a medical process called hematohydrosis. Mm. Like that happens. It's, it's a documented happening. It's very rare. 
But when you feel such intense anxiety that it ruptures your blood vessels, Mm. Jesus Christ, God incarnate felt that. So if, if the divine has gone to the depths of fear, then every part of the human experience has been named as holy and gathered Mm. up into God's presence. And so I wanted to give people an experience of taking back the word of God Mm. and making it a welcome rather than Mm. a weapon and getting to do that just slowly piece by piece um, by integrating my own story and all these different parts through it. I love, I think it's very effective. I have to also ask, I mean, I've obviously I've said the title several times, the Lord is my courage. Why that courage word, you know, you're going through the the 23rd Psalm, which some people, you know, might even call it the Lord is my shepherd. You know, we know what they're talking about when they say that, but here's Mm -hmm. the title, the Lord is my courage. Talk about the courage word. Why, why that? Yeah. So, um, Toward the end of my first book, This Two Shall Last, I write about repentance and repentance, not as you are so sinful and you need to turn from that, but repentance is an act of turning again and again to the God who calls your name and to the communion for which you were made. And so repentance is this act of attunement and attention Ooh, that I we like can that. always turn to this God who is turned toward us. And that courage is the vehicle of repentance. Mm. It takes it takes courage to turn to this God who looks at you with love mm. when you're afraid this God might actually not see you that way or might not even be there. Courage is the practice of communion. Mm. And so I became captivated by this, like, what is this practice? And, you know, N.T. Wright talks about courage as though, when you courage is what happens when you a thousand times make the cho- make a choice to do what is right and protect what is good, and on the thousand and first time it becomes your reflex. Mm. Um, I I love this the possibility that happens within practice. Mm. That practice takes what is unnatural and makes it who we are, and and that courage this communion with God that the Lord is my shepherd is actually my shepherd that I expect to be here with me every single day and hour of my day mm-hmm. that by practicing turning toward this shepherd, that relationship can become my reality and can mm-hmm. become yours. So uh, yeah, it, it spawned from my first book and just like beginning to look nice. at courage as this as this practice and this almost spiritual discipline. And then um, realizing like, as a woman with a disability, courage is what I experienced day after day. Like I said, it started from the story of Jesus feeding the crowds. And and I get to see every day, for example, like this morning, I did not sleep well last night. And I thought to myself before our interview, show up with a little bit that you have, like, just like this little boy with Jesus, I get to give the little bit that I have every day. I get to watch Jesus bless that little offering as brave. He breaks it and he gives it to nourish more than just me. Mm. And I think that that is what courage looks like. It's like mm-hmm. giving our little offering to Jesus, letting him bless even our meekness as brave, yes. break it, like experience the breaking 
as part of the blessing Mm -hmm. and let it nourish both us and others. Um, I love that. So that's why courage, because courage (laughs) has been what I've been asked to practice. And, and I think courage is about communion. I love that so much. Um, I, I think I also have to ask, you know, we've talked uh, about and around kind of the, the content, but I would love for you to give me a couple of your favorite phrases, word, word or phrase um, from the 23rd Psalm and, and mm-hmm. why, which may be, you know, what you talk about uh, in the book under that specific word or phrase, but I, I think that might be interesting for people and um, yeah, it yeah. Might- Yes. So the, there's two that are, well, I'll, I'll pick two because truthfully, so many of these phrases just like leap off the page when you know the It's like picking a favorite kid. You can't, you know. Oh my (laughs) word. It's like that. Yeah. But the two, two that I think are somewhat mind blowing. Ah. Um, The phrase, he makes me lie down. I'll start there. Okay. In in its actual context, he makes me lie down can be better translated as he settles me down. Mm. So it is not that our shepherd forces us into rest as a punishment, but our shepherd quite literally soothes and settles our souls. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, all the citing is in here of the, how I got to that conclusion. It's not just something I made up, but there is such beauty in even the way that the nervous system works that in order to come back home to a state of connection and calm to the joy for which you were made, you need to experience something called co-regulation. You have to experience another person being physically present with you, attuned to you, empathetic, safe. And it is the, the, the melody of their voice, the gaze of their eyes, the pressure of their hand on your shoulder that returns your nervous system back to the home for which you were made. That is how God made our bodies. And within Psalm 23, we're given a picture of a God who does that for us. Mm. He makes me lie down. He settles me down. God cares about the pathway of our nervous systems back to peace and, and does what we need to bring us back there. And can I just ask or interject this and get your comment on it? Um, we're so often looking for a person and that is wonderful. If we have a person in our lives Mm -hmm. that fits that bill as well, but if we do not, God is there. So comment on that. Am I on the right track there? Yeah. I, I think it's a both and that we need human people to give us this experience of physical presence that grounds us and brings us back to peace. Um, even when that is, that seems so far away and so inaccessible. And I think, um, it is also true that the Lord who is our shepherd by the spirit is present with us in ways that are palpable and transcend even 
our deepest loneliness. And it's something that we can't explain, but I know from my own life is true. And um, I think that it's one of the most common questions I get from, from readers is like, okay, so it's great that you talk about the way that your friends have um, you know, given you pres offered you presents, but like, how do you even make those kind of friends? Like, how do you have these people? And I, I think probably someday I probably am going to need to write a book about it, but <laughs> I think that when we have experienced, um, other people being less than kind and less than good toward us, Often we need to give ourselves room where we can practice experience, experiencing relationship as good and safe again. And a relationship with a therapist or a spiritual director is going to be a great place to begin that like, no, I am not your paid friend, but yes, I can give you a safe place to experience what it's like to be known and not crushed. And for your body to learn how to be with another person and, and receive that as good and hopeful. Um, and, and I, and I experienced spiritual directors offering us a very similar relational presence. So I think if you have no yes. one, give yourself a place, give yourself a person, yep. let yourself start there because it will have ripple effects into the rest of your life and make it possible to relate to other people and find those other people who are going to offer you a presence of kindness. Um, and it's not, that's not the only place to, to begin practicing, but it is a really potent one. Yes. Yeah. So why not give it to yourself? That's good. So, yeah. I love that. All right. One more, one more before we wrap yeah, up. Yeah. Oh, the other one. Did you do you have one more question or do you want uh, me to no, tell another, you one for more another thing? phrase, another word or phrase? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> so okay, the other one. Goodness, your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. So follow in Hebrew is radaf. And radaf means to hound, to chase, to harass. And every other place in the Old Testament where the word Rudaf is used, it is used in the context of enemies harassing and hounding, generally David or um, whoever else is using it. And this is, and this is its unique usage. Yeah. David, who has experienced being exiled by King Saul, a bad shepherd who has had his goodness used up and cursed. Mm is flipping the script on persecution and saying, Lord, your goodness and love hound me and chase me farther than all hate and harm. Wow. wow. And that is, that is my, that is my experience. I can say as a person, a survivor of spiritual abuse and religious trauma, God's goodness and love have chased me farther than all hate and harm. <sighs> And will continue, like will follow means those that goodness and love are going to keep following me until and past the day that I die. Goodness and love are seeking me and they are seeking you. Mm. Like there is goodness actually actively seeking you out, finding mm. you, chasing you down, hunting you. And, um, and that's even like, it's intense language and it's intense for a reason. You are not forgotten. You are being sought. And I find that just stunning yes. and, and such it's a, a good word. 
That's a good that's, word. That's it. It's stunning. Stunning. Wow. I'm here to say KJ Ramsey is a trauma-informed licensed professional counselor and writer, author of this beautiful book, The Lord is My Courage. And she's a preacher. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> I am a bit of a preacher. <laughs> this is good. good stuff. What a delight to have you on the podcast and to really hear some of your heart. And there's much, much more in The Lord is My Courage. KJ Ramsey, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And to everyone else, as always, I say, keep the conversation going. <laughs>